I'd like to begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence. May your word be our delight, your spirit our teacher, and your greater glory our supreme concern through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. As followers of Jesus, as Father Rick just mentioned, we are in the season of Lent when the church calls us to fasting and almsgiving and penitence to be aware of our personal fallenness and the brokenness of the world. Now, this happens to be the final Sunday in Lent, and I have to say it's about time. I don't know about you, but it's felt like Lent has been dragging on for two long years now, and quite frankly, I could use some good news for a change. The pandemic has had a real tangible effect on us. It's taken a toll on our lives, our spirituality, our vocations, our families, our vacations, our finances, and our relationships, even if we haven't caught the virus. As of last week, over 970,000 people have died from COVID in the US. And apparently, epidemiologists tell us, the virus may not be done with us yet. And that isn't all that's taken a toll on us. America is deeply divided. Disagreements too often slide into outrage and a lack of civility. Social media distracts us with an array of trivia and misinformation, a growing mistrust of the institutions and leaders of society threatens the fabric of our society. The news is so bad that the act of reviewing it online has its own name. It's called doom scrolling. Doesn't sound good, does it? But most of all, I don't like what all of this has revealed about my character, my lack of virtue, my slovenly spiritual disciplines, or the realization that meeting with God's people and having a weekly time of confession, like we just did, is, at least for me, grossly inadequate. And then there is Ukraine. The people of Ukraine, a nation about the size of Texas, are demonstrating resilience and courage against all odds, suffering a daily barrage of bombs and missiles that not only bring death and destruction, but a mass migration of vulnerable people who come under attack even as they try to flee. How do we even process this tragedy? And there is more, but I suspect that none of us need a review of the bad news. Like I said, what we need is good news, the birth of renewed hope. I think it feels rather like we've set out on a journey and have never been this way before. Do you know what I mean? That's doable in itself, except that we sense that the uncertainty may not relent as quickly as all of us would like, and it's the uncertainty that's so unsettling, isn't it? It's like we've joined up with Frodo the Hobbit. Remember that story? And the Fellowship of the Ring by J.R.R. Tolkien. We're on the road, away from the certainty of home, sensing that there is danger in the woods on either side of the road. And so we arrive at the Prancing Pony, where a letter from the wizard Gandalf is waiting for Frodo that introduces him to Strider, whose name is Aragon. 
And in the note is a brief poem, a poem that captures my heart's yearning. Listen to it. All that is gold does not glitter. Not all those who wander are lost. The old that is strong does not wither. Deep roots are not reached by the frost. From the ashes a fire shall be woken. A light from the shadows shall spring. Renewed shall be blade that was broken. The crownless again shall be king. The beauty of that vision is what I hope and wait for this morning in our uncertain times on this last Sunday of Lent. But is such a hope even possible? I mean, realistically, I believe it is. And to show you what I mean, let's turn to our scripture readings, all of which bring good news. They all herald the possibility of real substantial change, the arrival of something new that will right what's wrong and bring true renewal. In our Philippians reading, St. Paul celebrates what it means to know Jesus Christ as Lord of all. Everything in life, culture, and reality is now defined by Paul's primary allegiance to Christ. Even hard times are transformed, Paul says, not by becoming less hard, but because they allow him to share in the sufferings of Jesus. Indeed, he says in verse 8, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Now that's a very radical claim, and it's also a very hopeful one, because notice, this is not a spiritual self-help project where he goes on to tell us to pull ourselves up with a brute by our bootstraps. Rather, he says, this means we can experience the power of Christ's resurrection in this life and the next. Paul's audacious claim here is that God's kingdom is among us and we too can share in this life-generating power under Christ's lordship in the ordinary and the routine of our lives, even in, an unbroken, even in a broken and an uncertain world. In our gospel reading, Jesus tells a deliciously subversive story. Did you catch the irony that just drips through this text of scripture? It's all about a vineyard and its very displeased owner. But Jesus' audience wasn't distracted by that. The vineyard was a well-known metaphor used by the prophets throughout the scriptures to refer to Israel. And Jesus' story describes the vineyard workers, which would be the religious leaders of Israel, as unfaithful stewards who were so out of touch with God, they were willing to kill the vineyard owner's son. Turns out some religious leaders actually happened to be present and heard Jesus tell this story and became so enraged that they wanted to do Jesus in, demonstrating the actual truth of the story, which was the full irony of the whole thing. Still, I would argue that Jesus' primary point was not the religious leader's failure, but the fact that the vineyard owner was on the move that he has sent his son, and the one that has been rejected will be revealed to be the promised and long-awaited king who will right what's wrong and receive the crown once again. 
And that brings us to our Old Testament reading, which is, which is what I would like to look at a little bit more closely with you in detail. It's poetry composed in the 8th century BC by the Hebrew prophet Isaiah, who spoke God's word to God's people during a time of political uncertainty, discord, mass migrations, and invading armies. The Isaiah reading contains only six short verses that divide into three parts very neatly. The first two verses, 16 and 17, introduce the speaker who is the God who rescues with justice, ending oppression and bringing renewal. In the next two verses, 18 and the first part of 19, God speaks telling us to forget the past and look forward to something new. And the last two verses, the second half of verse 19 and 21, through 21, claim that God's renewal will extend to everything under the sun. Nothing will be left out, all of creation. There's reason to hope, in other words, Isaiah is saying, because God's on the move, righting what's wrong in our broken world and bringing restoration. Let's start with the middle section. Look at the middle section, verses 18 and the first part of 19. Remember not the former things, God says, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? Eugene Peterson translates these verses this way. Be alert. Be present. I'm about to do something brand new. It's bursting out. Don't you see it? You get the idea. In other words, we shouldn't imagine that the brokenness is the final word in this story. God is personally bringing something new that will right what's wrong and bring restoration beyond all of our wildest imagining. Now that's the good news. But I think there's a problem in this passage too, and I don't know if you noticed it. The problem is that when God announced his new thing, God asks a question that we're pretty sure should have a positive response from us. Don't you notice the new thing that's coming, God asks us? Don't you see it? Well, the problem is, what if we don't? I mean, don't see it, don't perceive it, I mean. What then? Well, I think that's a very good question. And it's a question we should ask of this text. Here's the answer I would give. First, it's worth reminding ourselves that it's hard to spot signs of hope in stressful times of uncertainty. So don't be so hard on ourselves, okay? We maintain hope not by being perfect, not by taking a leap in the dark against all evidence, but by reviewing the reasons for hope which I'm going to do in just a moment, so just hang on for a moment, okay? We'll get there. But the first point is, don't be too hard on yourself. If you read this and you think, God expects me to say yes, but I don't see it quite yet. The second thing I would say is, God isn't posing a test here. He isn't implying that if you don't notice the new thing, you've somehow lost and fallen out of favor, sort of stepped off the cliff, so to speak, spiritually. That's the sort of thing that pagan gods do, where you have to appease them. And the God of scripture is not a pagan God. 
Rather, I believe he's asking this question to awaken us, to remind us that signs of the new thing can be perceived if we have eyes that are willing to see. You see the difference? And what are those signs? Well, very helpfully, Isaiah alludes to two of them and the other two parts of the text. So let's look at them next. Look at the first section, verses 16 and 17. This is where he introduces the God who speaks to us, who promises a new thing that's bringing renewal. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Isaiah is very imaginatively and creatively here do, do, doing two things simultaneously. First, he invokes an event that his audience will immediately understand. And he reminds them that the God that restores is a God of justice. Those are the two things he does. This event is pivotal in Israel's national story, the story that identifies them as a people and sets them apart from all the other nations. Centuries earlier, the Israelites were an oppressed and despised people enslaved in Egypt. God heard their prayers for rescue, and he raised up Moses to lead them out of captivity to a place where they could call home, a, a land where God actually dwelled right in their midst with them. In Egypt, they celebrated the first Passover, which was actually a very awful event because death came to every household in the land that night. Either a lamb died or a firstborn child. And as the Israelites sat down together over that first Passover meal, they were face to face with the cost of their redemption in the same way we're going to be in a few moments this morning. So they left Israel traveling into the wilderness towards a land none of them had ever seen. And over succeeding days, however, the grief that had flooded the hearts of Pharaoh and the Egyptians soon morphed into outrage. And the Egyptian army was dispatched to bring the Israelites back and return them to servitude. So Israel found itself trapped with the uncrossable Red Sea in front of them and the Egyptian army coming up behind them. Do you remember this story? You can read it later. Okay. You can read it in Exodus 14 and 15. The short version is that God opened a way across the water for his people. And when the Egyptians tried to follow, their chariots got mired in the mud, the army bogged down, and scores drowned. God had rescued his people with justice. Now, Isaiah evokes that great historic narrative in the way that he introduces God. God makes a path in the mighty waters, he says, where chariots and horses lie down and cannot rise. His audience would know instantly what he was referring to because that event was not a secret it wasn't something that was accomplished in the shadows. It wasn't just a myth. It was open and public and known in history. Word spread about it, as a matter of fact. And as Israel traveled towards Canaan from the Red Sea into the Promised Land, they found that the various tribes that they encountered had heard the news of their God and what he had done for them. In other words, 
Israel could trust that God was doing a new thing, not as a blind leap of faith just because Isaiah said it, but because the God who promised had worked in the past in a way that could be verified and known. Israel's story provided reason to hope because the Red Sea actually happened. You see? And that suggests an obvious point for us, an obvious question for us. Namely, is there an equivalent event in the Christian story? An event that defines and identifies us and that in terms of history is verifiable and known? Indeed there is. We will celebrate it in exactly two weeks. It's called Easter. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. On that day, the ancient and venerable myth of the dying God who comes back to life became a fact of history, known and verified and witnessed. If you have doubts or questions about the historicity of the resurrection, talk to Father Rick or myself afterwards. We can point you to some resources to help you think it through. There's people like N.T. Wright and C.S. Lewis, Timothy Keller, that have written on this subject very helpfully. The point is this. Isaiah says God has promised a new thing, but we don't have to just take his word for it. There is reason to believe it because actually God began his great restoration 2,000 years ago when he raised Jesus from the dead. A new thing is promised and an empty tomb in history witnessed is the guarantee. And that would actually bring us full circle to the Philippians text that we had and read where Paul talks about the resurrection, but I don't have time to go into that, so you'll have to study it for yourself. And finally, let's look at the third section of the Isaiah reading, the second half of verse 19 through 21. I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert, God says. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. In other words, God's new thing will result in the restoration of all things in all of creation. What began at the resurrection, it's going to do everything. All creation will praise the Creator. Now, I would say, because I tend to be a skeptical modern person, that if this is a credible promise, we would expect that nature reveals something of glory now, wouldn't you? So I ask you, have you ever caught a glimpse of transcendence, a hint of a far greater radiance in the ordinary things of nature? I have. Outside one of my childhood homes was a large evergreen tree. The lowest branches of the tree had not been trimmed back, and so they formed a tent on the ground. I discovered I could, as a boy, push through the tent of branches and enter a space where I could hear and see out, but yet remain totally hidden. Nobody ever discovered me there. And it was there that I learned to listen to the voices of birds their alarms and scoldings and squabbling and calls and songs. Even the endlessly repetitive chirping of English sparrows was not discordant to me. They were singular cries to be noticed. 
The robins were mostly silent, running along the ground to suddenly stop, head tilted to one side before pouncing up and taking up an insect or finding an earthworm. Chickadees were always on the move, flitting from branch to branch, even inside my tent. Blue jays, always quick to notice danger, did not seem to mind me being there, but would let me know when the dogs from up the block, brutish, nasty creatures, were on the prowl. Learning to hear the birds filled my imagination with the hope that something lovely was possible beyond the judgmental and abusive atmosphere of the home in which I was raised. Perhaps, just perhaps, a better place was possible where beauty and song would reign. It was also there that I learned to listen to something else. I learned to listen to the silence. And in the silence, I found contentment. Now, I don't mean that somehow I learned to be content as if I slowly developed a skill to be content, but rather that under that tree, contentment inexplicably washed over me and into me and filled my soul. I remember it as a surprise, as from beyond me, as gracious. And in that contentment, I caught a glimmer of hope that there was something beyond the narrow, disappointing confines of my daily existence that could perhaps have much wider horizons. As a boy, I could never have verbalized any of this. It's looking back now that I know that there, in that little tent, under the tree, with birds and silence, I caught a glimpse of a greater reality. See, all that God has made has his fingerprints all over it. If we have eyes to see, we can catch brief glimpses of transcendence, hints of glory in nature. I cannot prove to you this morning that those subtle signs exist, but I would argue they can be seen. They can be seen. Take the time to do so. Look at history and see the empty tomb. Look around at the astounding order and beauty of the universe. The first is a historic fact. The second are subtle yet convincing hints that there is more than just the here and now of space and time. And both provide a reason to believe God's promised. Something new is coming. In fact, it's already begun. Do you see it? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.